Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. One of the most disturbing things about war is the realization of our own capacity to engage in violence towards the other and the intoxication that that violence brings. One understands in that kind of a situation how enticing unlimited power and the license to destroy, destroy not only physical buildings and villages but human lives, how godlike that is. Um, And just watching it is disturbing. A war correspondent, wounded veterans, and others reflect on the human costs of war. You're listening to Beyond War, a documentary project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Following the blood-soaked 20th century, when military conflict left more war dead, mostly civilians, than at any time in recorded history, the practice of warfare has come to seem almost like normal behavior. We are no longer very shocked to hear about the thundering of fighter jets, the rolling of armored tanks, and the positioning of a human person in the crosshairs of a rifle lens. But regardless of cause or context, There is something intrinsically terrible when human beings undertake to harm each other on a mass scale. It is a tragedy for those on whom violence is inflicted and also for those who are driven to inflict it. Everyone we've talked to about war, soldiers and peace activists, arms manufacturers and the wounded, historians and journalists, war makers and lawmakers, they all agree with a time-tattered observation that war is hell. It is an adage often recited and with little preventive effect. But is war a necessary evil? Or is it total madness? Does the waging of war with its fierce brutality degrade us, transform us into the enemy we so despise and fear? Or is it the high price we must pay for freedom and security on a violent planet? When you walk into a village in Bosnia or El Salvador or anywhere else in a combat situation, soldiers are already tense and nervous. And there has to be an almost instantaneous reaction in order to preserve your own life. 
Chris Hedges, author of War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, is a longtime war correspondent for the New York Times. I remember in the war in Bosnia, the Muslims made a push outside the city. And a friend of mine who was a father and had been drafted into the army was with a unit that managed to make a small advance into one of the Serb suburbs around Sarajevo. He, as he was walking down the street, heard a, a noise um, at the opening of a door, and he turned and fired and shot dead uh, a 12-year-old girl. This was an event from which he never recovered because he had a 12-year-old girl. And he spent the rest of the war as a broken shell of a man who tried to cope with the murder of a child. Having been with soldiers in that kind of a situation, I don't think you can fault them. Um, that door opening up could have very well been a Serb gunner, and um, the few seconds that you would take to check the identity of the person behind the door could mean the difference between living and dying. But I think once they engage in the enterprise of war, and that, that powerful force, which is always part of being in combat of self-preservation, means that um, you take the life of the other to preserve your own life, even if that life is of a child. To wage war is to release from the bottle a wild genie who sets the rules of a vicious escalating cycle. On the battlefield, you must kill or be killed, and might makes right, often at the cost of innocent lives. To some, those terms are always morally reprehensible, but others are willing to make war under certain conditions, like the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Freedom and fear are at war. We will rally the world to this cause by our efforts, by our courage. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. I was with the Marine Corps in the Persian Gulf War and went into Kuwait with the Marines and then went into Iraq by myself where I was captured and held by the Iraqi Republican Guard for a week. War correspondent Chris Hedges. The frontline soldiers who were going into Kuwait in the days before battle, in the days before the attack, became increasingly sickened by the jingoism and the patriotic flag-waving that was taking place in the United States. I think this is true often of combat troops. They fought for the people around them. They didn't fight for the flag. They didn't fight for any of the sort of high ideals which are always sold to us, which are part of the lie of war. And they fought to survive and to protect those with their them. own. I mean, the, and that's why all soldiers fight. War is hell. War is awful. But those who wage war, they're not pacifists. They're not guys who are, are humanists. Scott Ritter is an ex-U.S. Marine who served as chief United Nations weapons inspector in Iraq in the 1990s. When you unleash the dogs of war, understand that you will get hell. You will get death. 
you will get destruction because that is what we are trained to do. And we will do it. We will mow them down and we'll bring our people back alive. That's the reality. And so when you tell the military guys, okay, we're going to unleash you. They want to be unleashed so they can kill as many of the enemy as possible with as little risk to themselves. You know, war is not a fair game. It's not a baseball match, you know, where you want good two teams of equal capability going up and having a fair game. I don't want anything fair about war. If you're going to put my Marines on the field of battle, I'm going to kick the hell out of the enemy. I don't want it to be fair. I want to hold him down. I want to slit his throat. I want to bang his head. I want to blow him up. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to eviscerate him. I'm going to destroy him. That's why you unleashed me. And if you don't want that result, then don't unleash me. The ruthlessness of war is on gruesome display at military hospitals established to treat soldiers injured in combat. The popular TV series MASH played up an inescapable sense of the absurdity of military medicine, whose purpose is to preserve life in a war zone. Military doctors in real life can face large numbers of the wounded arriving at once. With limited resources, the physicians often must judge which injuries need critical attention and which injuries are likely to be fatal. The most urgent cases are head wounds and the hemorrhaging of the chest or abdomen. Surgeon John Hutton, now a brigadier general in the U.S. Army, treated soldiers in Vietnam. I spoke to him at an Army convention in Washington. What's the atmosphere like in a hospital operating room in, in a war zone when you just see body after body come in wounded people in severe pain? You know, you just take them one at a time. We had six operating rooms, three in each room, and as soon as we were finished with one, if there was another one ready, in he'd come and we'd just start working again. And I remember at times we'd have it almost over and you'd hear the helicopters coming. And that meant six, eight, 10, 12 more. Very often, we, the internists, would sort of have things lined up for us. We'd go and make the final decision, and then one by one they'd be brought into the operating room, and we'd just go again. How do you reconcile, on the one hand, the oath that a physician must take to save life with the mission of an army in combat to destroy life? Well, we have never engaged in, in a war that wasn't brought about against us. In other words, sometimes you have to fight for your life and for your family's lives and for your country's lives. And when you're engaged in that kind of a, of a battle, uh, the taking of life, unfortunately, is necessary. And this has been, this is just a fact of history. And it goes back to that most primordial of instincts, uh, a survival instinct. Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Otto commands the Devons Reserve Forces training area outside Boston. He wore army battle dress when we talked at his office. If you're being attacked, your natural instinct is to defend yourself. It's basically just an extension of that notion, the, the notion of self-defense that justifies the use of force, lethal force, if necessary. 
So you see military action, military intervention as, as essentially a case of the other guy started it and we're going to defend ourselves Correct. against it. Correct. Yeah, I think that's why we use the term defense, national defense. We're in the defense industry. The notion that the United States has acted only in defense would be disputed by opponents of American military intervention in Iraq, Vietnam, Korea, and elsewhere. But the rationale for war is routinely characterized by governments as an act of self-defense. Joanna Burke, author of An Intimate History of Killing, is professor of history at the University of London. That's the most common claim. It's a claim made by, by states. Uh, after all, um, Hitler said that he was only acting in self-defense um, in, in 1939. Every government makes that. All sides use that defense. It also is a defense used at an individual level. Every single um, serviceman, combatant you talk to will say that he or she only killed in self-defense. It was either him or me. And of course, in modern warfare, that is absolute nonsense because the vast majority of killing takes place long distance, far up in the skies or miles away on the ground. The word defense has become absurdly misused. Howard Zinn, author of A People's History of the United States, is history professor emeritus at Boston University. In, I think, a common sense and ordinary definition of the word defense, uh, somebody is attacking you, and you defend yourself against the attacker. But the word defense has become so distorted that uh, if somebody attacks you and you find out where that person lives, you go into that neighborhood and you destroy the neighborhood and you call that defense. Somebody who's dropping bombs on a village uh, because uh, the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorists is not acting in defense. Even if that village is a location where the people who destroyed the Twin Towers are being harbored? Well, yes, because if you want to defend yourself against, well, not the perpetrators of the attack because they are dead, but let's assume we know who planned the attack and these people are hiding out in a village, a neighborhood. Is it acceptable to kill all the people in that neighborhood or to kill the people in that village uh, on the chance that you will therefore kill the people who planned the attack? Uh, I don't call that self-defense. A place where there's ample time to contemplate questions of war and peace is here amid the intravenous tubing and the bedpans of the Heinz VA Hospital outside Chicago. We visited the spinal cord unit to talk with veterans who sustained injuries while in the service. Attending the bedside of one paraplegic is a jovial World War II vet, Russell Tarver Jr., who has spent decades volunteering at the Veterans Hospital. 
I come, the reason to take care of people can't take care of themselves because I know how the feelings are, especially with spinal cord patients. And you can't wash your teeth, you can't wash your hands, you can't do this. You have to depend on everybody to help you survive your life. Mr. Tarver told me of his experience in war, including having been held as a POW. Well, I'd say I'm a professional killer, right? What do you mean? Because I served in the Marine Corps. So, I mean, which makes a, a lot of difference when you can go out not killing people for hire, but you're trained to kill people, trained to protect yourself and your loved ones. Did you ever have to kill anybody? I mean, lots of times. Do you ha ever have to wrestle with regrets over the fact that you've participated in killing people? No, no, I, I guess I was a born killer. <laughs> I mean, I, I sleep good, I rest good, <clears throat> no psychiatric problems, no medicine. Because I train people to kill hand to hand, this and that, you know. Take a comb and kill you in 10 seconds. We're trained that way. A lot of them don't practice it. I don't practice it on the outside, but, but it's possible. Overhearing our conversation from a bed nearby is a spinal cord patient, Chris Rowley, Jr. He's thought a lot about the military since leaving active service in 1980. It's a license to kill. You, you, it's like once you go in, whatever they say do, it's done, or else you suffer the consequences. If they say go kill them people over there, you go in to kill them. But it's like when you signed on that dotted line, you became United States government property. It's just like this this bed I'm laying in and stuff. This United States government property. I, I was, I'm just like this metal. Say you detour, or say you have mind thoughts such as you resort back to thinking Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill is one of them, right? Now, they didn't gave the orders to go over there to that little place over there and kill everybody that's moving. No questions asked. If you don't do it, you'll be court-martialed and locked up and thrown away the key because you won't win. It's fear setting and basic training. When, when they push people too hard, I've seen it happen. I've seen this. A guy does it does it sort of break the person? Oh, it break you, it break them, and it break your spirit too. Because I, I, see, I was in basic training with a guy from Iceland. He was six foot four. They had us standing so long in the sun, he fell flat on his face. Drill instructors ran up to him and was kicking him and everything, talking about get up, get up. I'm standing behind him with my knees shaking and everything, scared to death, hoping, praying to God that I don't fall because I'm finna face the same kind of treatment and I'm just in basic training. So was that dehumanizing to you? Yeah. Of course it was. And we ain't even facing the enemy yet, you know what I mean? So it, it, it's a hell of a situation, you know? Army drill exercises at the Devons Training Area in Massachusetts. Fight. DSS. Fight. DSS. 
My body's in a foxhole. My body's in a foxhole. A bullet in his head. A bullet in his head. Medic says he's wounded. Medic says he's wounded. But I know he's dead. But I know he's dead. New arrivals to the military routinely undergo the strict regimentation of basic training. It is psychologically designed to instill unquestioning obedience by soldiers to the chain of command. On entering the military, soldiers must swear an oath that they will kill if ordered. This can set up a deep conflict with the norms of civilian society, where deliberate killing is considered the most grievous crime a person can commit. Moral and religious strictures against murder run deep. The military must override this basic reflex and also the impulse to flee danger in order to prepare soldiers for war. It is accomplished in part by a system of rigid submission to authority. U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Otto says new soldiers are often in for a rude awakening. Every freedom you can imagine is controlled and restricted. Uh, you, you're told... Uh, how to stand, how to talk, how to eat, how to walk, when to walk, when to run. You, you virtually relearn how to exist in a, in a very structured environment. It teaches you things like daily routine. Virtually everything you do is somewhat controlled. I guess with some people, they're trained, you know, to take orders, whether they want to, or not. Gordon Willis is a spinal cord patient at the Heinz Veterans Hospital in Illinois. On both sides, they're trained to do that. If you know that one side was trained to do the same to you, and you was trained to do the same to them, you have no other choice. You have no other choice, you know, but to do what the higher ranking person tells you to do. Orders have to be obeyed down the line. Something that, that a private or a lieutenant sees at the, at the platoon level in front of them, uh, that's his whole world. But that's a small piece of a large puzzle that's, that's, that's unfolding around them. And uh, in order to even to save their lives, they may have to do things that they don't think are prudent at the time. But because they don't see the whole picture, they don't understand that, that, that they need to do that. So, so obedience to orders is important to both accomplishing the mission and saving American lives. Well, well, Historian well, Joanna Burke in London. Even today, they still do training with a bayonet, um, you know, against, against bundles of hay and things like that. In other words, this is an attempt to accustomize people to scary things and to teach them to convert fear into anger. In the past, there have been many, many different ways of doing this. Military training often uses live ammunition. Um, during the Second World War, British Army recruits were taken to abattoirs and taught to kill animals, to use bayonets on animals, in order to get them accustomed to the smell of battle, the smell of blood. Um, no, just kind of desensitizing. Desensitizing is the important thing. And this is what converts your fear into, into anger. Military uh, instructors are saying things like, pretend he's raping your mother. These, these things are drummed into people.
War planners know that normal human sensitivities can hamper military efficiency and effectiveness. Thus, a key component of war psychology is the designation of an enemy to rally against. The enemy is typically portrayed as despicable, as a legitimate object of hatred. Historian Howard Zinn served as an American bombardier in World War II. The soldier doesn't understand what he's doing. <laughs> he doesn't understand that he's ignoring this person's humanity because the word humanity doesn't enter into it uh, because what he is acting against is something inhuman, an object, an abstraction. And the enemy is not really a human being. The enemy is a symbol. Uh, if the person who is the enemy suddenly shows a human form, the soldier reacts differently. I remember George Orwell talking about his experience in the Spanish Civil War, aiming his rifle at a member of Franco's army, a fascist, you might say, although that's another label we apply very easily to any poor joker conscripted into somebody's service, you see. But, yes, yeah, somebody fighting on the fascist side, he aiming his rifle at them. And the person he's aiming his rifle at is losing his pants. His, and Orwell says, I couldn't fire. Because suddenly the man's losing his pants made him human to me. And so I believe that it's necessary for the humanity of that person to be um, absolutely removed from the mind of the person who is doing the killing in order for that killing to take place. We don't simply choose any enemy. We choose enemies that we've already built up pictures of, images of, um, over long, long periods. Historian Joanna Burke. We all know how to hate. We all know who the baddies are. And even though they may live next door to us, we may even you know, give them a, a, a cup of coffee every now and then. It doesn't take much for um, societies to suddenly gel around the fact that we, ought, we must do something, we must get rid of these people, that somehow all of a sudden this neighbor is, is a threat to us. Um, you know, time and again, these enemies that we, we are identifying are people who we've lived very happily with, um, are people, are countries that we've traded with and, and have had, you know, reasonably good um, communications with. Uh, I think it requires that the person who is doing this awful damage justify it in human terms, justify it in terms of saving life, uh, maybe not saving life immediately, but saving life in the future. Now, uh, this is a preventive action. I'm killing this person, um, destroying people who live in this village, because if I don't, the consequences will be worse for human beings. Uh, I suppose it's a tribute to the human race that, that people need moral justification for the terrible things they do. Uh, on the other hand, it uh, makes it easier uh, to commit atrocities. Uh, I think of the soldiers who committed the My Lai massacre. How did they justify it? Uh, Captain Medina told them that uh, this was the enemy. 
These were Viet Cong, uh, another abstraction. Viet Cong, an abstraction covering old people, women, children, uh, the enemy covering you know, anybody uh, who um, was in a certain area, whoever they were. Uh, Captain Medina even at one point said, uh, these are communists. And so the little children of Milai became communists. And uh, we, once you have been told that communists are evil and that, that killing communists is good, uh, well, then you don't have to think about it anymore. You're listening to Beyond War, a documentary project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern and Kathy Graham. Music performed by Brad Hatfield. Research assistance by Erzali Coquillon. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment of Beyond War is Humankind Program number 62. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.